Clear and Vivid is sponsored by the Kavli Foundation, dedicated to advancing science for the benefit of humanity. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? It's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 BrandSpark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus is central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. You and I and everything in the world around us emerged through a sequence of quantum processes stretching all the way back to the Big Bang, heading toward our existence today. And each of those quantum processes could have turned out differently. It could have turned out that way instead of this yielding a universe in which neither you nor I or anybody else would be here. And so it is spectacularly unlikely that we are here, and therefore there's a deep sense of gratitude that I feel toward the universe for the mere fact of existence. And it goes beyond just mere existence. We are not rocks, we're not stones, right? Because of the power of evolution, we are so exquisitely ordered Our particle arrangement is so wonderfully configured that we can create beauty, right? We can experience wonder. We can illuminate mystery. A member of our species wrote the Ninth Symphony. A member of our species wrote Hamlet. I mean, that's spectacular that a collection of particles governed by physical law can do that. And that, to me, is where this whole story focuses our attention on the capacity of this mere collection of particles to do wondrous things. That's Brian Greene. Brian has spent his amazing career as a physicist and communicator, bringing the wonders of the cosmos into our lives. His new book is called Until the End of Time, Mind, Matter, and Our Search for Meaning in an Evolving Universe. And in that book, he considers the trillions and trillions of particles that make up each of us and everything else in the universe. And although it's all going to disappear someday, surprisingly, Brian finds meaning in the wonder of our very brief existence. Our talk was scheduled to take place in front of an audience at the 92nd Street Y in New York. But like everybody else these days, we came face-to-face on computer screens rather than in person. Our audience joined us remotely, too, so be sure to stay with us for their questions instead of the seven that I usually ask at the end of each episode. It's great to talk to you again, Brian. I always love it. I always have a great time. As do I. Your your new book is, again, about the cosmos, which to me has always seemed like a dark, forbidding place, punctuated by moments of destruction. And yet you start this book with 
a personal point of view that you don't you don't usually see in the book that makes the cosmos and mathematics and quantum mechanics makes it makes all that clear. You're able to do something very personal. I'll answer in a couple of ways. So, so first off, since this book is really uh, a, a different kind of book than the previous science-oriented books that I have written. This book is really about the idea that to gain the fullest understanding of reality, you need to layer together a whole variety of different descriptions, different stories about how the universe behaves. You have the physicist story, which is way down at the level of particles and laws. You have the chemist story that puts them together into molecules. You've got the biologist who puts them together into you know, cells and things of that sort. And then on top of that, you have the higher level stories, neuroscientists, philosophers talking about mind and the sense of self-reflection of being in the world. So since you need to have all these distinct stories, I thought it'd be quite out of character for the book, frankly, if I didn't inject the human story of the human author, because that's the story that I know best. And that is, for each of us, a deep part of the account of how we make sense of our own lives. So that's why there's a more personal quality that threads itself through the discussion in the book. But the opening, indeed, I did focus upon this realization that I had uh, many, many decades ago, which is that very few things in the world are permanent. The world is largely impermanent. However, mathematics has a distinct quality in that once you prove a mathematical theorem, if you haven't made a mistake, it simply is true forever. It can't ever be overthrown. It can't ever be done away with. Perhaps it becomes irrelevant at some point in the future, but the truth of that mathematical theorem is fixed and set and permanent. And there was something to me that was deeply alluring in a quality of the world that did have that sense of permanence. But you talked about dread at one point. What was the dread? Well, the dread was the, the recognition that I think we all have, obviously, at some point in our lives, but the recognition that we are all mortal, that we are going to die. And, you know, for me, there was a book that really brought this home in the most poetic way. It was a book by Ernest Becker called The Denial of Death, in, in which Becker makes this claim, which I certainly have seen a lot of evidence for in my own life and in the life of others that I have engaged with, that a lot of the motivation of us human beings at one level or another is an attempt to deny our own mortality, to seek out those qualities of the world that will not change. And, and certainly that recognition can fill you with dread, but it can also motivate you to try to deal with that dread and to find things of value in the world that give you a sense of permanence, even in the face of the physical fact that none of us will achieve that kind of permanence because that's not how the universe behaves. It's not how life behaves in this cosmos. So do you think that this unconscious drive to defeat death by finding permanence in various places has led people to cherish the permanent truths of mathematics, for instance? I think it does. I mean, I think if you look right across the spectrum of, of human culture, human civilizations across the ages, there has been a significant focus 
on finding things that are permanent or at least telling us stories about things that promise permanence. I mean, Stephen Jay Gould had a wonderful way of looking at religion, but to summarize it in a single sentence of his, he said that all religions begin with the realization of death. All religions are in some sense a response to our recognition of our own mortality. And it isn't just for religion. That's one primary example. But, you know, as a physicist, the thing that certainly has driven me over the course of decades has been to try to find the deep truths of the universe. What does that mean? That means trying to find the mathematical laws that encapsulate patterns of reality that may never change, that may always be true. We don't know if we have those laws right now, but the promise of a physical law, like Schrodinger's equation in quantum mechanics, or Einstein's field equations in the general theory of relativity, or Maxwell's equations of electricity and magnetism, the promise and the allure of these mathematical ideas is that they may be tapping into qualities of reality that transcend everything that we know about as human beings and transcend the very notion of mortality and impermanence. So yes, is there a deep allure to finding mathematical articulations of deep, possibly permanent truths of reality? Yeah, I think it's deeply alluring and I do think it's a motivating force. You know, I can't help but bring up what we're all going through now. All of us are going through this time when probably more times during the day than we have for months at a time previously thought about the possibility of our own death or the death of people around us. You think that's driving us? I mean, is it driving you more to think about permanence in other things? I mean, do you find yourself going to equations more than you usually do? Well, we are, as you say, and as we all know, living through one of the most difficult times of the last century. We are living through a time of great tragedy, great pain, great suffering. And I certainly would say that I find that if you can not only live in the moment and recognize everything that's happening in the world around us, but if you can have a parallel story that you are also living within, and the parallel story that I find most powerful is the narrative of the cosmos. If you see your life, and if you see human species, and if you see the earth, and you see the sun within the context of the cosmological unfolding from the Big Bang, working its way through the formation of stars and planets, the emergence of life, the emergence of conscious beings, if you see yourself within that story, it doesn't mitigate the pain and suffering that's happening at the moment, but it does give you a different kind of perspective on it. And I can speak for myself. It gives me a certain sense of solace. It gives me a certain kind of, of anchor that I find to be very helpful. I can live in the moment, but at the same time, I can pull back and have that cosmic perspective, which to me is a very powerful perspective to have. So what about this? In your view of the cosmos that you're, you've been drawn to outlining for the past three years, the story there is the universe is born, goes through a period, we wake up and have a brief existence, and then the damn thing dies, just like we're going to. 
So uh, where, where's the solace in that? That you because I, I don't mind dying. I, to me, that's that's coming up. I mean, that's on my it's on my schedule. I just don't know where. But I have a friend who said, "I know we all have to die, but in my lifetime." <laughs> but um, the thing is, a lot of people would say, "What solace can you find knowing if you're looking for permanence in the universe, you ain't going to find it?" Yes. Well. Um Indeed, I would say what you've just said is exactly the point, and it's exactly the point, in fact, that that I develop in the book. And, and in summary, the perspective that I have is the following. Across the ages, we have, as a species, for the most part, looked out to the universe in one way or another to try to find the value and purpose and meaning of our existence. We're constantly looking out for something to give us the answer. And the point that you just made, which is correct, which is that not only are we as human beings going to die, but the universe as a whole is going to die in the sense that it will come a point in the far future when it will not be able to support any complex matter, any life, Probably no conscious being will be able to exist in that realm. So it all goes away. So looking out at the universe to try to find the answer, the purpose, the meaning is looking in the wrong direction. So what that realization, that cosmological realization, what it does for me is it makes me look inward and to recognize where I came from. And by that, I mean the following you and I and and everything in the world around us emerged through a sequence of quantum processes stretching all the way back to the Big Bang, heading toward our existence today. And each of those quantum processes could have turned out differently. It could have turned out that way instead of this, yielding a universe in which neither you nor I or anybody else would be here. And so it is spectacularly unlikely that we are here And therefore, there's a deep sense of gratitude that I feel toward the universe for the mere fact of existence. And it goes beyond just mere existence. We are not rocks. We're not stones. Because of the power of evolution, we are so exquisitely ordered. Our particle arrangement is so wonderfully configured that we can create beauty, right? We can experience wonder. We can illuminate mystery. A member of our species wrote the Ninth Symphony. A member of our species wrote Hamlet. I mean, that's spectacular that a collection of particles governed by physical law can do that. And that, to me, is where this whole story focuses our attention on the capacity of this mere collection of particles to do wondrous things. And that's where the solace comes from, by seeing this collection of particles within that cosmological unfolding. So you're talking about finding meaning in the sense of gratitude that you feel or or is meaning more, especially when you talk about living in the present moment to moment. Um, that sounds a little to me like the way I interpreted the existentialists when I was a kid in college, that it, it wasn't that it was a bleak view of life, but that it meant if you want meaning, you have to create your own. There is no reason to expect there to be some universal meaning out there ready to be overlaid upon our lives. Many people think in those terms, but I can assure you that 
in the fundamental laws of physics, be they quantum theory or relativity, there's no notion of meaning. There's no notion of purpose. It is the mindless, purposeless laws of physics that govern the unfolding of every event in the world. So to try to look out there to find that meaning is a fool's errand. The only kind of meaning is manufactured. It's artificial, and that doesn't denigrate it. To my mind, that makes it all the more powerful that the meaning is something that we come up with as opposed to something that is given to us from on high. It's not stitched into the fundamental tapestry of reality. There is no meaning that transcends our existence. Meaning comes into existence with our arrival on the scene. Well, that, that's the way I look at it, too. So that doesn't sound, I don't, I'm, not, I'm not contentious in the face of that. But I want to throw you a curveball because if you take it, as I think you do, that we're a collection of particles that have the ability to experience being alive, then the interaction of our particles with other particles leads to our behavior. And I think that leads you to think there is no free will. And if there's no free will, what does it mean to create your own meaning? What does it mean to create anything? Yeah. Yeah, so, so um, you're right in, in your assessment. The only thing I would change is you said that um, you described as, I think that there's no free will. And I would simply change that to, I know that there's no free will. <laughs> so, so it's not something that I'm sort of on the fence about. But in saying that, I need to be very precise with my definition of free will, because free will is a very fluid concept that people use in many, many different ways. So when I talk about free will, I'm talking about the, the intuitive notion that we are the ultimate authors of our actions. We are the place where our choices and decisions originate. And that's a very intuitive notion. We all feel it. There's probably an evolutionary explanation for why we feel that. It was probably beneficial to our forebears and perhaps to ourselves to think that we have the kind of control that we intuitively feel that we do. But when you recognize that we are just bags of particles governed by physical law, and that every decision we make, every action we undertake is just those particles coursing this way through our brains, going that way through our brains, my particles going up and down with my right hand right here. The motion of all those particles is fully governed as far as we can tell by the underlying laws of physics. And within those underlying laws, there's no opportunity for any of us to intercede in the unfolding. The laws do not chug along. And at some point, the laws say to the particles, hey, hang on, let Alan make a decision now. Don't do anything till Alan makes a decision. And only when Alan makes a decision do the laws then gear back up and chug further along. There is nothing like that in how the world unfolds. So, so that is the reason, and that's the definition of free will that I am denying the existence of. But, you know, there are other allied notions that I feel take the place of that traditional notion of free will that address your question. So, for instance, we, because of our highly organized particulate arrangement, can undertake behaviors that are simply unavailable to inanimate matter, 
right? I mean, a rock, no matter what kind of stimulus you provide it, pretty much just sits there. The reason, the internal arrangement of the particles in the rock is so fantastically simple that there's not much that the rock can do. We, because of this complex arrangement, can respond to stimuli in a whole spectrum of behaviors. We don't pick those behaviors, we don't choose those behaviors, but our collection of particles is able to execute those behaviors. So when I talk about things like creativity, or when I talk about writing Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, or when I talk about manufacturing your own meaning, that is all coming from particle motion inside this bag that we call our skin, fully determined by physical law, but that doesn't mean that those collections of particles can't execute wondrous behaviors. And among those wondrous behaviors is a behavior that we would call manufacturing your own meaning. Okay, so let me challenge that for a minute. And I'm starting from the idea that I, in the way I think about this, I think there's much less free will than we think there is. But to say there's none at all sounds like it's mixing up the micro with the macro. All the little particles are interacting according to the laws of particle interaction. But when they aggregate into a human, then that human doesn't have the right, if he murders somebody, to say to the judge, my brain made me do it. We hold people responsible for their actions. Are we wrong in your view to do that? No. Um, so, so there's an interesting question. It's the one that, that you're, you're bringing up through that example. If you don't have free will, what happens to the concept of responsibility and punishment? And, and the answer that I give to that question is, if you, say, uh, execute some behavior, murder, in the example that you just gave, that is reprehensible, are you responsible for that action? Can you claim to lack responsibility because of the lack of free will? Absolutely not. Your action was carried out by your particles. Your particles are responsible for that action manifestly, and therefore you are responsible for that particular undertaking. Now, the real question though is, should you be punished? Well, that's a whole other that's a whole other question, whether you should be punished or not. Well, I think that's the vital one, because the whole issue of responsibility really gains its teeth because we want to determine how to respond to certain kinds of behaviors in the world. If we didn't have to come up with responses to behaviors in the world, then it'd be an academic question as to whether you were responsible. So so I think it's really important to talk about whether or not punishment should be doled out in a world in which the beings that are executing actions don't have free will. And the answer to that question, I think, is quite straightforward. Even in a world absent free will, there is such a thing as learning. And so if by punishing someone for behavior, you can cause that kind of learning to take place either in that individual or others that are watching the situation, and if the learning is such that it improves our ability to police those actions and to deter those actions in the future, then that punishment is worthwhile. It's a completely consequentialist approach to punishment, which is completely compatible with the world where the beings executing the actions do not have free will.
After a short break, Brian Greene talks about the certainty that the universe itself won't survive forever. Even the universe will die. And yet Brian finds solace in his gratitude for our own brief existence. When we come back. The sponsor of Clear and Vivid is the Kavli Foundation, a partner in the Kavli Prize, which honors scientists for breakthroughs in astrophysics, nanoscience, and neuroscience. The 2020 Kavli Prize laureates will be announced on May 27th in participation with the World Science Festival and today's guest, Brian Green. The Kavli Prize is a partnership between the Norwegian Academy of Science and Letters, the Norwegian Ministry of Education and Research, and the Kavli Foundation. In our next podcast, we'll speak with Kavli Prize and Nobel Prize laureate Kip Thorne for his role in the detection of gravitational waves. Listen in on May 26th. And on May 28th, listen in for a special podcast on the 2020 Kavli Prize laureates. I want to thank all of you who have signed up to support Clear and Vivid on Patreon. It really helps us to bring you conversations with some of the most interesting people out there. Along with our sponsors, you make Clear and Vivid possible. If you haven't become a patron yet, here's how it works. If you visit patreon.com slash clearandvivid, you can subscribe for as little as $2 a month to get advanced news about coming shows and get listed on a virtual wall of generous benefactors, and there's even a modest bit of swag. If you go for a higher level of support, there's a lot of fun stuff coming your way. Videos and audio clips of moments with our guests that were fascinating but didn't make it into the show. Bonus episodes of behind-the-scenes chat as my producer Graham Chet and I put the shows together. Plus, for our top subscribers, a monthly video conference with me. That's been a wonderful experience. I love meeting the thoughtful, engaged people who listen to our podcast. And I'll even record a personalized voicemail message for your mobile phone. If you'd like to know more, just go to patreon.com slash clearandvivid. And remember, you don't have to become a patron to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen for free. But you can get an awful lot of fun extras if you do become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work with the Alda Center for Communicating Science. So join us at patreon.com slash clearandvivid. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. Disney Plus and Hulu are better together in the Disney Bundle with new movies and series. On Disney Plus, experience the full Taylor Swift The Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with new main show performances and acoustic collection. On Hulu, follow the fantastical evolution of Bella Baxter, played by Emma Stone in the award-winning film Poor Things. All of these and more streaming this month. Get the Disney Bundle with Disney Plus and Hulu. Terms apply. See DisneyBundle.com for details. When it comes to buying your first home, everyone has questions. Can we even afford to buy a house right now? Well, I need to negotiate. How do I even negotiate? Luckily, a REMAX agent has answers. Hey, Brian, those are really good questions. They are? Thanks. It's my first time buying. I work with first-time buyers all the time. I got you. Remax agents have more experience than other real estate agents. Visit Remax.com or download the Remax app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Each office independently owned and operated. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. 
Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. And now back to my conversation with Brian Green. One of the things that I love about the book that we're talking about, Until the End of Time, is that it compares the life of the universe to the life we have, a beginning, a middle, and an end, an actual end. And there is kind of central to that the notion of entropy, And I think the way I've thought of entropy before this is a more commonplace way, the way many other people think of it. But the the serious professional mathematician's way of thinking of it is slightly different, I think. What I've always thought of it as things tend to fall apart. That's not a bad way of summarizing it. It is the case that when... We look at the overall aggregate behavior of a physical system. It tends to go from order toward disorder. It tends to go from structure to disintegration. So the notion that things tend to fall apart is not a bad summary of what the second law of thermodynamics and entropy tells us. But, but as I discuss in the book, Entropy is not the only force at work in driving the large-scale development of structure in the universe. There's also evolution. And by evolution, I don't just mean the Darwinian version that really kicks in when life appears. There's a version of evolution that applies even long before life ever arose. Even molecules, once they learn the trick of replication— And that is a a wondrous trick, but it's a trick that molecules do learn. Once molecules learn to make copies of themselves, then those molecules that can make copies faster, sharper, more efficiently, more stable, are the ones that will pull in more of the raw material in the environment, and therefore they will dominate the demographics, the molecular demographics. There's a kind of chemical combat that takes place right down at the level of particles. And that process tends to build structure. It tends to refine complex matter. So on the one hand, you've got entropy that tends to sort of push things toward degradation. On the other, you've got this evolutionary force that tends to build structure. And there's this kind of dance between them over the course of cosmological history. We are the beneficiary of living at a period of time when we, the product of evolution, are able to stave off entropy for at least a little while. We are gadgets that take in raw material from the environment, release heat and waste to the environment, and use the energy that we mine to keep our own entropy low. When we expire, we lose that battle, and entropy ultimately wins. And as you're saying, when you look at the universe, you find that entropy also will ultimately win. In the far future, structure will disintegrate. And that's what we mean, in a sense, by the universe having its own version of mortality. 
We are the product of evolution, the evolutionary process that you were talking about, the product of it in our lives as living things. Uh, I mean, even the rocks, from the way you described it, are the product of some kind of chemical evolution, the ability uh, to uh, aggregate in the way they did. But we seem to think of the pro progress that we've made evolving to, to the point we are now as being the good part of existence. Because look what it produced, us. But as you point out, the overriding story is the end of everything. So in a way, it not only wins, it seems to have seems to dominate the conversation and seems to be, we seem to be hanging on to growth and evolution towards some kind of perfection, we imagine, when in fact it just comes up like a flame and dies out. Yeah, yeah, you're right. I mean, you know, Nabokov said it well that, you know, we are nothing but a brief crack of light between two eternities of darkness. And some people find that depressing and other people find it hysterically funny. Uh, I'm not sure I count myself in either of those camps, but what I would say is it makes me appreciate this moment because it's fleeting and it's also wondrous. It's also painful, as we all know too well from things that are happening in the world today. But even in the face of the tragic times, I take, as we said early on, a great deal of solace in the fact that there is the wonder of this brief crack of light at all, that there is this existence at all. Because again, I mean, seriously, you can do a calculation that in roughly 10 to the 50 years, all right, that is a long time frame by anything that we are familiar with, right? We're now about 10 to the 10 years since the Big Bang. So I'm talking 10 to the 50 years from now. That's a long time scale. But it, the math suggests strongly that the universe will be so full of waste entropy by that point that any thinking being, even the process of thought, necessarily produces entropy. But like right now, as we're thinking, the universe is able to absorb the entropy that we are producing, the heat and waste that's coming off of our bodies and the environment can soak it up. But in 10 to the 50 years, the environment will be so stuffed with entropy that it won't be able to absorb the heat created by the process of thought. So any cogitating being, if they still exist at that point, one more thought and they will fry up in the own waste heat generated by the process of thought itself. So 10 to the 50 may sound like a very long time frame, but on the scale of eternity, it is a blink of an eye. So in a blink of an eye on cosmological timescales, everything that we know about, every capacity to think and feel is likely to be gone. You raise a question in my mind that is so germane to this, because as you think about the gratitude that it's possible to feel f just about being alive for this brief time, even if you think of all of our species, how long can they last? Can they be average? Will our species last a couple of million years? Or it, it seems, seems like a long time. 
for us the way we're constituted. But what 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 makes me interested is to know how rare you think life is, and life at least as intelligent as us, and possibly way more intelligent given the time it's had to work on it. How rare is life? Do you think it's all over the place? It, it, it is so hard to answer that question with anything but a hunch and guess. There's like so much stuff out there, I think we all feel this way, that it just seems likely that life must have arisen someplace else in the cosmos. And then the big question is, well, okay, what if it's microbial? What if it's life that maybe is more complex than microbes, but not complex enough to build radio telescopes or to really even realize that there's a wider universe out there? I mean, it could have been that if that meteor hadn't slammed into Earth 65 million years ago, maybe the dinosaurs would still be walking around. Now, maybe the dinosaurs would be really smart and built their own radio telescopes. I mean, I, who knows? So, so it's quite possible that there could be life out there, but not at the level that we would feel any less lonely. There may be life here. I mean, it's, it, it, it seems to me possible that there's life here that we can't communicate with that has more to communicate than we imagine. It's, it's definitely possible. And, and one of the things that I discuss in the book is how we are the only species that recognizes our own mortality. That's sort of a singular quality of the species. And some people said to me, well, like, what about elephants? You know, they mourn their dead. I mean, how, why are you? And, and, and absolutely. I mean, and, and it's possible, I guess, that elephants, as they're walking around, are contemplating the finite nature of their own life. They're trying to think about like, why am I here with this long tusk? You know, what, what's the purpose of my life strolling around on the savannah? I guess it's possible. I just think it's, I think it's unlikely. So, so maybe one day we'll communicate with other animal species and we may learn that there's much more going on there than we thought. But my guess is, and my hunch is, and the evidence seems to suggest that even if some of these species can mourn their own dead, they can recognize and respond to the death of a member of their group. That's quite different from having the ability to think about the past, contemplate the future, wonder about why you're here. And I suspect that we are the only species that does that. Well, it would, it's time now for us to communicate with the audience and see what they're thinking about. Naomi Gibbs. Let's see what Naomi Gibbs has to say. Uh, this is actually Charles Gibbs. I, I thank you all, first, first of all, for this uh, fascinating conversation. My, my question is simply, if this is a flash of light between two spans of darkness, what's on the other side of uh, either of those spans of darkness? Yeah, I'd be happy to say a few words on that, Alan, and maybe uh, want to add to it. But so on one side of it is the question, you know, what happened before the Big Bang? And this is a question that we don't know the answer to. It could be that the Big Bang is truly where time itself begins and the notion of before the Big Bang that needs a conception of time for the word before to even make sense. And maybe if time begins at the Big Bang, there is no notion of before the Big Bang. Another possibility is there may have been a long prehistory before our Big Bang. It may be that Big Bang is not where time begins. It could be that the Big Bang is an interesting event in our universe, but maybe there are other Big Bangs giving rise to other universes. 
that are scattered throughout a wider cosmological landscape. And if that's the case, maybe there was life and there may have been all sorts of interesting things that happened. So the darkness that Nabokov envisioned, maybe it is punctuated here and there in the past by other brief cracks of light. Let's go to another person, Michael Brodkin. Do you have a question, Michael? Yes, I was wondering whether you know you thought that uh, quantum theory or the many worlds model could be a means by which free will could at least to a limited extent exist. It is a very natural question because in a world, say, fully governed by classical physics, the laws of Newton, it seems manifest that there can't be any free will because according to Newton, simply tell me the positions and the velocities of all the particles right now and the laws will fully determine the configuration of those particles tomorrow or the next day. And since you are a collection of those particles being fully determined by these laws of physics rules out any ability for you to intercede in the unfolding. When quantum mechanics comes along, people say to themselves, maybe there's an opening because quantum mechanics only predicts the probability of getting one outcome or another outcome or another outcome still. And so maybe people say within that probabilistic articulation of the unfolding, maybe human free will can get in on the action there. Like maybe pick one of the multiple possibilities that might happen in the future. And as far as I can see, the answer is no. It doesn't open the door to free will one single bit because randomly selecting the outcomes, which is our understanding of what happens in quantum mechanics, a random choice is not a volitional choice. A volitional choice is one that you decide on and you choose. If I told you that your decisions were determined by a flip of the coin, I don't think that that would feel as though I had reinstated the free will that you feel. So said in the most general way, I don't care what the laws are. I don't care if it's many worlds. I don't care if it's quantum mechanics or classical mechanics or whatever new fangled theory we come up with in the future. If reality is guided fully by lawful progression, whatever those laws may be, then there simply is no opportunity for free will to have any role because the laws, whatever they are, are determining in the sense of how the particles behave, what transpires, whether it's probabilistic as in quantum mechanics or deterministic in the usual sense in classical physics, it doesn't matter. If the laws are in charge, as we seem to think they are, then there's no place for us to influence or end run what they are guiding to happen. Let's hear from, and I hope I come close with your name, Lisa Vaskilovitz. I had wanted to know Brian's thoughts on that our world is a simulation in relation to a creator or a god. Yeah. Well, it is a very interesting and provocative possibility that everything that we know about right here might actually be nothing but an elaborate supercomputer simulation. I mean, we know that computers are getting ever better at creating worlds that are ever closer to the worlds that we experience. We don't know if you'll ever be able to simulate conscious beings 
on a computer. But if you allow for that possibility, then there's an interesting argument that comes from the philosopher Nick Bostrom at Oxford, where he says, look, it's very hard to create a real universe, but it may be very easy in the future, say, to create simulated universes. And if those simulated universes have conscious beings within those simulated environments, then there may be many, many more simulated conscious beings than there are real ones, which means if you ask yourself, are you real or are you simulated, the sheer probabilities seem to suggest that you're simulated. There's so many more of those in the future. Every kid in a garage may have their own supercomputer and they fire it up when they come home from school, creating conscious beings after conscious beings within those simulated environments. So Number one, it's interesting to contemplate that because it's an argument that at least makes us take seriously the possibility that we are simulated. But what Lisa's asking is, what role does that have in thinking about a creator? And for me, it has a big role. Because normally when we think about a creator, we associate that with a supernatural force. Right? That's the usual version that we have when we talk about God creating the earth, some supernatural force. But in the simulated version of reality, the person who started the simulation, again, may have been that kid in a futuristic garage. And that kid would be subject to laws of physics. The laws in the outer world may be different from the laws that are simulated in the simulated world. So we could have a creator, and that creator could be fully natural, not supernatural, that creator could be the kid who flipped the switch and created the simulation that we are experiencing. Now, I, I'm not saying this to say that I take this idea really seriously. I don't walk around the world imagining that there is this kid and that I'm a simulated being, but it does at least give us an existence proof where you can have a creator, but you don't have to step outside the scientific approach to understanding reality. Yeah, I'm still thinking about that. I'll go, I'm, next time we have a beer, I'm going to ask you a couple of things about What about Dustin? We were, going, we we're going to talk to Dustin a minute ago. Are you there, Dustin? Yeah. Um, so I, I sort of get the premise here that, um, you know, life has no intrinsic meaning. We have to kind of manufacture the meaning ourselves. I was kind of wondering where that where does that leave us though? Like what now? How do we do the manufacturing? Uh, in your opinion, like and I know that's like subjective uh, and personal for everybody. So maybe it might be useful to to share how you found meaning in your own individual life. Yeah. So I totally agree. I totally agree with your assessment. In fact, that would be the first thing I would emphasize that it is a highly personal, completely subjective journey, which in a sense we are all on. I think the value of thinking about the world in this way is that it frees you up from the search in the outer world for that which will give you meaning, and it allows you to focus your energy in the place where it can really matter, which is this subjective approach to manufacturing your own meaning. Now, as to my own approach, well, look, I don't think there's any great surprise why I have spent my life working toward a unified theory of physics trying to understand the true nature of space and time and gravity and particles and so forth, because to me, these touch on the questions that have the greatest capacity to transcend the everyday, to transcend the ordinary day-to-day -day life of us human beings on planet Earth. So for many decades, that's really where my focus was exclusively. I, I didn't care so much about what was happening here. I just wanted to know what the deep truths were 
And, and, and I believe that that urge was coming from my own like self-realization is that urge was coming from the very thing that we were discussing earlier, that, that, that desire to grab hold of something that will be permanent. And as I've gotten older, I've, I've shifted. I, I still value that journey. But as, for instance, this book, I think, makes clear, I also have opened up a great deal over the decades to the value of things which are not of that sort, the value of, of, of storytelling, the value of myth. I see great value in religion, not as an explanation of the objective world, but religion in the sense of William James. Right, William James, in the variety of religious experience, in this beautiful passage toward the end of the book, describes how religion can, for some, illuminate an inner search for the very meaning you're asking about, and it can illuminate it in a way that, that allows us to fully feel, as James described it, the, the sublimity of the stars, the, the, the sensation of the falling rain in spring, and, and he described how, by engaging in a certain kind of spiritual journey, those experiences can integrate into your life in a more full way. And these are kind of things that I didn't pay as much attention to when I was younger and just on the quest to find the deep laws of physics. And I certainly do pay attention to them now. So that's part of my own personal journey. Let's hear Karen Shulman's thoughts. Karen Shulman. My son has a question. Um, yeah, I was wondering, a lot of what you're saying, um, you, you, you call it like, like it's general fact, um, but I would say 90% of the country wouldn't believe it. What would you say to those people? Well, you're raising an issue that I think is, is vital, which in the last few years in particular has seen a degradation of our respect for facts or respect for expertise of any kind, a rising up of the sense that it's just opinion that matters. And look, I am very firm in my description of how there are truths in the world that science can reveal. And those truths are vital for us to understand so that we can have policy and we can have approaches to understanding the climate or understanding the planet or understanding our impact on our environment. And these kinds of things are not open for opinion. They are revealed by the powerful methods of science because science is really good at revealing objective facts about the world. Now, there are some people who can't hear this, and the only way, ultimately, I think, to change the overall perspective on science is to reach kids. You've got to reach kids at an early age, and you've got to reach them in a way where they don't feel intimidated by science, as many do, but rather they feel elevated by the capacity to go from confusion to understanding. I've seen this happen with kids that I've, that I've spoken with or worked with where they don't understand something. And even if it's a small step toward clarity, that move can impact them for life. And, you know, I, I try to do this. You know, Alan and I are involved in this thing called the World Science Festival that I co-founded with Tracy Day. And the whole point of the World Science Festival is to give these kinds of experiences, not just to kids, but to also adults. So I don't know the answer to your question. I hope that what I'm describing here is part of 
a journey toward resolving it, at least in the future. I mean, it's going to be hard to resolve things now, but when the leadership changes, I hope that there can be a return to normalcy in terms of the value that science can bring to us. Now, having said that, and just as a small footnote, the problem I also see is some scientists go out in the world and try to negate other parts of human experience that many people value. There are some scientists who want religion to be wiped off the face of the earth. Now, I agree with them when it comes to you can't use religion to gain insight into the objective qualities of the world. That's not what religion is good at. I disagree with them in that religion can play a part in some people's lives that, as I was mentioning before, can help them on their own personal journey toward meaning and purpose. And from that perspective, I think it's incredibly counterproductive to try to negate the power of something that's been with us as a species for thousands of years. And you know, as you say that, I'm reminded of the beginning of our conversation when you talked about gratitude, which is one of the functions of religion, to express gratitude for the wonders of nature. And unfortunately, the beginning of our talk has come to the end of our talk. It's about time for us to get off stage. Thanks so much for joining us. Good night from the Y. Good night, Brian. Good night, Alan. Thank you. My thanks to the sponsor of this podcast and to all of you who support our show on Patreon. You keep clear and vivid up and running. And after we pay expenses, whatever is left over goes to the Alda Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. So your support is contributing to the better communication of science. We're very grateful. As the director of Columbia University's Center for Theoretical Physics, Brian Greene has made groundbreaking discoveries in the wonderfully arcane world of string theory. But he's best known for his captivating books, bringing the cosmos alive to millions of readers and for his television appearances, including two very successful miniseries for PBS. I've had the privilege of working with Brian on the World Science Festival, which he co-founded with his wife, Tracy Day. And this year's festival, which was originally scheduled to be held as usual in New York City in late May, will instead move largely online. For more information about Brian and the World Science Festival, check out briangreen.org. That's green with an E dot org. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our associate producer, Gene Chimay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you like to listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid. And I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. When it comes to listing your home for sale, everyone and their mom has advice. Oh, honey, who's going to want to buy this place on a cul-de-sac? 
it's literally a dead end. But for professional advice, a REMAX agent actually knows best. Let's start with a neighborhood analysis. I've been seeing lots of buyers looking to move here. REMAX is the most trusted name in real estate. Visit REMAX.com or download the REMAX app to find the right agent. The right agent can lead the way. Based on 2022 Brand Spark American Trust Study. Each office independently owned and operated. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with Kip Thorne for another trip into the cosmos. This time, a decades-long quest to detect ripples in space-time, gravitational waves set out by the most violent events in the universe. We'll be talking about how he felt when the first gravitational wave that was sent out by the collision of two black holes was finally detected. Kip's interests have also gravitated to show business, He gave me insights into the mind of Richard Feynman when I played Feynman on the stage. And he worked with the director, Christopher Nolan, to help shape the concepts in the movie Interstellar. Next time on Clear and Vivid.